This is Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast for writers and readers by writers and readers. Hello and welcome to Dissecting Dragons. I'm Madeleine Vaughan. And I'm Jules Ironside. This week, hard times in magic and logic, examining the parameters of hard science fiction and fantasy. So, um, why this episode? (laughs) Yeah, this is kind of a weird stepping off place. Um, Basically, I stumbled across someone's review of something which called a book that I'd read hard hard fantasy and i'd never actually heard the term hard fantasy before which in, apparently it's been in use for quite a while so i've obviously had my head in the ground about this one mm. um but it just sort of started me thinking um as reading tends to do <laughs> so i mean even though i've been reading from this you know it's not a very populated subgenre for years and so i've been you know taking books from it for quite some time um I was just wondering how it compares to hard science fiction and how we define it and, you know, whether there are elements that perhaps I incorporate in my own writing and just who the target audience is, apart from me, because I'm the target audience for most things, in most fairness. Things, yeah. <laughs> um, and, and one thing kind of led to another, and then I just saddled Madeline with this episode and said, <laughs> we need to talk about this because I'm interested. So. Yeah. Um, <laughs> now just a little uh heads up we do have a future episode planned where we're going to be looking at the comparison of hard and soft magic systems um so even though there are kind of elements of that in this discussion we're going to skim over the specifics of magic in this case and look at the hard fantasy and sci-fi system as a whole so if you are thinking, oh, I want to know more about that, don't worry, we've got you covered later on in the season. <laughs> yes. Um, I think it's also worth iterating that certainly as far as fantasy is concerned, no one really knows who coined the term hard fantasy. Um, mm. it, it seems to have come into usage definitely around 2009. There was a radio interview with uh, Megan Linsgold. Megan Linsgold is better known as Robin Hobb, who wrote the Assassins and the Farseer trilogy. Yeah. Um, quite honestly, I'm not a Robin Hobb fan, but she is a very, very popular fantasy author. Um, it also seems to have been in usage possibly as far back as the 80s. Um, it's, it's popped up in another interview with another author who said, oh, somebody asked me about this back in, I think it was 82. Um so no one's really done a concerted, yes, this is what it means, in the same way that they have done for hard science fiction. Yeah. And, you know, as with all terminology connected to speculative fiction, it tends to have meant slightly different things at different times. Um, and we're really only dealing with a very broad definition here. So if you're looking for absolute pinpoint accuracy, this is kind of like a, a diving board. This is, this is not going to be like a bullseye for you. Yeah. For all of our um, uh, younger listeners, uh, the best way to kind of think about genre is it's like a, it's like a hashtag. Um, lots of people will use it. For the most part, it consists of things which are relatively in keeping, but uh, every now and again there's an outlier. Um, and it's not you can't always define it as something which is easy or simple or necessarily uh, pinpoint where it came from, um, nor restrict it to never changing. So genre is complicated, guys. So with that in mind. It is. I mean, in some respects, 
genre as like a taxonomic thing is only really useful to people who've got to put books on shelves in places where other people have got to find them whether that be digital shelves or physical shelves so yeah but genre is literally just there to help you find things yeah absolutely Um, so having having established that genre is very very difficult to uh, actually define uh we are now going to try and define it. So what do we mean when we talk about hard fantasy or when we talk about hard science fiction? Yeah. Now, I mean, if we're talking about science fiction, then we're looking at a subgenre with the main concern being scientific accuracy and logic. Um, the term was originally taken from the somewhat aged and decrepit definitions of natural, i.e. hard sciences, and soft, i.e. social sciences. Yeah. Um, and at this point, it, it's worth reminding everyone that the term science didn't used to mean just maths, engineering, physics, etc. It used to simply refer to an area of study. So, for example, grammar would have been the soft science of language usage. Hmm. So hopefully everyone's still with me after that. (laughs) In addition, hard science fiction is bound by the rigours of current and projected near future scientific sort of materials. So uh, chemical, uh, physical, biological, technological, engineering advancements, etc. So the intention is to be as close to accurate as possible with regards to modern and current understanding, and the story is nearly always concerned with solving a logical problem. Yeah, so, I mean, good examples, and there's many, many examples of hard science fiction. I'm probably not going to mention most people's favourites just because it's, you know, it'd be almost a series of episodes to just do that. Yeah. Um, but. Isaac Asimov's Foundation series, uh, Kim Stanley Robinson's Mars trilogy, which is very concerned with the ecology of terraforming a planet. Mm-hmm. Um, Ian M. Banks' Culture series, uh, people are going to be going, hang on, that's not hard sci-fi. And I'm like, this is where we get into the weeds a little bit. And actually, I, I, <laughs> it is. And, and we'll explain why as we get further into the episode. Um, but basically, the heart of a hard science fiction story is the relationship between its scientific content and the attitude of the rest of the narrative. So mm. for those who really like their science fiction very hard, it's also defined by the rigour and accuracy of the science itself. So if you are a physics nerd or a maths nerd or something and you absolutely cannot tolerate sort of like the the Star Trek-esque thing of, oh, well, we just have warp speed without explaining exactly how warp speed really works and you know you talk about warp cores and things and you don't explain the physics or maths behind it then 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 you really like hard hard science fiction because you absolutely need to have it that that wed to a logical system that has mathematics behind it yeah absolutely so um with all that in mind uh what about hard fantasy yeah, I mean, it does have one similarity to hard science fiction. And a lot of this is my opinion, having had time to think about it and do some research. Um, but it, basically, this similarity is that hard, the, the hard fantasy subgenre attempts to present stories set in and centred around a logical, knowable world with rational parameters. Yeah. Um, now, this means that the world building is generally very detailed, it tends to be incredibly rigorous, and it is set out in a very logical manner. 
However, this is the point at which hard sci-fi and hard fantasy hit that fork in the road and massively diverged. Yeah, I mean, I suppose in all ways, science fiction and fantasy have that divergent point, don't they? But this is where they're kind of like, yeah, and and never the twain shall meet you kind of thing. Um, But as a relatively young subgenre, hard fantasy defies being pinned down definition-wise, whereas hard science fiction is quite well defined, I think, now. Um, And it often comes down to who is doing the defining. So no one has achieved a consensus on the subject of hard fantasy yet. But, well... Not, not yet anyway but basically I've seen things where people have said oh this is hard fantasy and I'm like no it's not <laughs> and I'm sure I'll say things in this episode where I'm like this is an example of hard fantasy and there'll be listeners going no it's not what are you yeah. talking about <laughs> it's like it's very nebulous um, however we have to we have to buckle down somewhere so there are a few kind of defining traits um, certainly that um most people will agree on, but perhaps not everybody. Uh, the most obvious is that hard fantasy is any story which treats magic like science. So while a hard magic system, which again we're not going to go into because there's a whole future episode about that, can be an obvious tell, it isn't absolutely a definite indicator. So uh, I think an example of this would be um, uh, Brandon Sanderson's uh, Mistborn series. Yeah, um, and what, in my opinion, makes that more hard fantasy is the relation between, or the relationship between the world, which is detailed and complex and follows like logical rules within the parameters of that fantasy setting, and the hard magic system in usage in that world and the way the characters go through the world and interact and and kind of work on I guess they work on the assumption that the world is logical within the parameters they understand so in the same way that we all agree that we all agree on reality it's kind mm-hmm. of like the shared lie because we can't see an, ex- an extra 10 dimensions you know no. we can basically perceive three maybe four so we have to work on that's what reality is defined by for us um and it's the same for these characters, except that their world might incorporate things like this hard magic system. Yeah. Um, hard fantasy might also include strange new scientific studies, um, usually of things like impossible creatures, um, with actually very little magic or very minimal magic involved. Now, a really good example of this um, is A Natural History of Dragons by um, Marie Brennan. I think it's Marie, or is it Mary? I'm pretty sure it's Marie. Marie, yeah. Um, Now, that is set in sort of like an alternative Georgian sort of history time, and it sees the main character go on a sort of kind of wonderful adventure she's she's a uh, starts off as a naturalist and then sort of becomes a bit of an explorer um, and she faces all the problems of traveling during the age of sail um, and lack of vaccinations and antibiotics uh, plus having some very interesting encounters with other cultures where she often lives as a native for years at a time um, and this could it could very much be the story of a woman in Georgian time just traveling sort of in a very kind of uh, sir, um, uh, oh my god uh, so like like a Darwin-esque sort of way except uh, she's there studying dragons 
Yeah, and it, it, it's brilliant. The way they go about her studying the dragons is, I mean, she kind of gets... She's, she's always been fascinated ever since she was a child, but she manages to get along for the ride initially, partly because her husband's into it, when, which obviously she encourages, but partly because she's learned to draw and draw anatomically correctly. So she's a great asset when it comes to actually drawing dragons so they can get ac- accurate anatomical drawings of them. Yeah. And then, you know, I think we've mentioned this book before, but she loses her husband in the first book. Mm. Um, but it doesn't, you know, it doesn't stop her enthusiasm for dragons, and there's all this social stuff against the backdrop of it. But she still goes on studying dragons, etc. And she ends up living with a tribe in basically the Amazonian rainforest for a while. And it's really interesting, sort of anthropology and stuff that you could see actually being something that would have happened except that this is not alternate history with one very very big difference which is that dragons are real yeah and it, and they're not treated as some kind of magical creature but as you would you know like a komodo dragon or a tiger or something like that which is we have these dragons there's lots of other different amazing species out there and they have some weird qualities uh, but they're animals and it's exciting etc and it is quite masterfully kind of put together. It is just a fantastic adventure story as well, I think. Yeah. Which also sort of props up the fantasy. Um, so, okay, another point that hard fantasy does tend to have at some point is it shares some crossover with historical fiction, as we've just been saying. Um, but in this instance, while the magic system might be soft or not terribly defined, the detail attempt. The, the detailed attention paid to historical accuracy will be very acute. Oh. Um, the author will endeavour, generally, to be scrupulously faithful to known historical and anthropological data, and the magic, if there is any, tends to take a back seat to this. So, I mean, a good example is Naomi Novak's Temeraire series, where the English and French employ dragon riders against each other during the Napoleonic Wars. <laughs> or Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell by Susanna Clarke, where you've got a very accurate, on pretty much all social levels, depiction of Regency England, except Mm. everyone's going after magic, and there's the Fae there doing their own things, and prophecies and stuff as well. Yeah. (laughs) Which is great, because you sort of... And this really demonstrates our point wonderfully, is that you put Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell next to A Natural History of Dragons, and you sort of go, well, the only kind of similar thing is is sort of the period. They, they just seem to completely divert. And yet, I, I would argue both of them are clearly um, hard fantasy. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But I mean, I've also heard people sort of say, well, they're quite soft fantasy, really. And I'm like, what are you basing that on? The fact that the magic system isn't as defined as you want in Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. Yeah, I think it's it's almost like people will use the word soft fantasy thinking there are only a few fantastical elements, um, but it's it's kind of <laughs> yeah. I, I I think it also it's one of the reasons why perhaps it, this isn't as well defined um, because there's an understanding with hard sci-fi of right that's going to be hard scientific facts. So people almost kind of want to go oh well if it's soft. It would be hard fantasy if there's lots and lots of fantastical elements. Um, so it's one of those areas where it starts to get a bit wibbly wobbly. Yeah. Um, 
And where it gets even more wibbly-wobbly is that another variant, and this is, I think, going to upset a few people, is the type of story which actually has no magic or magical creatures at all, um, but is fantasy by dint of being in a completely imagined time and place. Um, now, these kinds of stories tend to focus on political intrigue, societal clashes, warring countries or kingdoms, um, or, ex or are used as kind of examinations of issues such as colonialism, etc. Magic, if it is ever mentioned, tends to be superstition, uh, which is never shown to actually work, and the gods tend to exist as sort of more nebulous kind of ineffable ideas rather than actual entities. Uh, now, I do know of a great example of this, which is uh, Seth Dickinson's Masquerade series, yeah. um, which follows uh, Baru Corm uh, Cormorant um, as she goes from bright but innocent native girl to cog in the Masquerade Empire system where she attempts to wrangle through the political machinations and take down the system from within. Uh, Jules has talked about this book in uh, in great detail, actually, previously. You know what? I'm, I'm really uh, grateful you didn't just say, Jules has talked about this endlessly, <laughs> no. which would be accurate. That's it. Um, but yes, uh, I absolutely love this series. It, wouldn't be, it absolutely won't be everybody's cup of tea just because... It is fantasy, and to me, it feels like fantasy. It tastes like fantasy when I'm reading it. Yeah. Excuse my lexical synesthesia there. Um, <laughs> but it doesn't have any magic. Um, there's no special portals or devices, or there's no real mythology. It's very incidental if it's in there at all. Hmm. It is literally just set in an imagined world with an imagined empire with imagined rules and guidelines and things and cultural clashes. Yeah. And a lot of politics, obviously. <laughs> yes. A lot of politics. Okay, so maybe at this point you're listening and going I, uh, you've lost me or perhaps you're listening and going yes absolutely or perhaps you're listening and going yes I agreed up until this point and I totally disagree with that uh, and again that is the trouble with talking about hard fantasy but unfortunately guys it gets a little bit more complicated because we haven't even started on the subject of fairy tales <laughs> yeah and that is the question, isn't it? What about fairy tales? Um, it might seem like a redundant question, given that we've just spent all that time talking about rigorous structures and the parameters of science fiction and fantasy in hard terms. Um, after all, what do fairy tales and folk tales have to do with that? So the thing is, there is a broad and probably incomplete theory that what divides hard and soft fantasy at a fundament fundamental level is how they treat fairy tales. Soft fantasy often has its roots in folklore or fairy stories, even if, as in the majority of cases, they are not direct retellings or reimaginings. Hard fantasy might mention a fairy tale, but it will be there as a comparative device in the narrative or a piece of anthropological colour. It won't actually have any direct effect on the story. 
Yeah, so let that sink in for a moment <laughs> as we try to define these things. Yes. Um, <laughs> and for those of you going, hold on a second, but you just yeah. talked about Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. We know. It's complicated. <laughs> <laughs> it's a complicated relationship. Um, okay, so consider The Witcher, um, both the books and the TV series, and in fact the games, if you wish. Yes. Um, as dark and gritty as it is, it's technically soft fantasy. Its narrative form is rooted in folk tales. It incorporates folklore as direct elements which affect the plot, and in a few cases, it retells actual fairy tales. Consequently, some viewers and readers found it difficult to get on board with because they found the world was not logical and therefore they had difficulty with the suspension of disbelief. Hmm. Um, so, magic existed and it largely did its own thing within the Witcher universe. Uh, occasionally being harnessed by the protagonist with some rules and regulations around it but largely the, the magic itself you couldn't really tie it to a mathematical system for example yeah there were no hard and fast explanations for what was going on no now if we contrast this with garth nix's um uh is it Abhorsant series? I could, yeah. You know when you see words and you're just there like, you read them and that's that's it, but you suddenly realise you don't actually know how to say them when when you're suddenly struck with the, the need to say them out loud. Uh, now, this was an older middle grade sort of YA series and it carried a sense that everything will be... Everything will go all right. Um, it is technically hard fantasy. Yeah. So, I mean, don't assume, I guess, that hard fantasy has to be a verging on dark fantasy or grim dark. You can yeah. have hard fantasy in any of those subgenres just to make things really complicated. Yeah, absolutely. Um, now, why do we say it's hard fantasy? Well, the world is very well defined. Uh, things happen for definite reasons. The power known as magic exists as a natural force, almost like the weather or a volcano, etc. But if you study it, you can harness it through uh, charter marks, which is essentially an alphabet which gives form to the force and allows the wielder to direct it. We know in that world why the dead rise and how exactly the Apostle banishes them. We know there's uh, a maths and musical component and what lies directly after death. It does not root itself in the fairy tale realm of this can happen just because. Things happen as a direct result of human interference or physical or natural occurrences. Yeah, so uh, a little sort of sidestep here mm -hmm. I, I think we're doing a reasonable job of saying you know if very broadly the difference between hard and soft fantasy but um something that i haven't really sort of jotted a note down about is the fact that well, where did this idea of hard fantasy originate from really mm -hmm. because and i think it's complicated and this is kind of like off the cuff so if I'm wrong, or if you've got a different opinion, I'd love to hear about it. But basically, um, science fiction as a genre technically has existed longer than fantasy by itself as a genre. Hmm. Um, we really got fantasy as we would understand it as a separate genre, and it became much more rooted after Tolkien wrote The Lord of the Rings. I mean, I realise people groan about Tolkien, unfairly, in my opinion. Um, but that's where we got the high fantasy, the sword and sorcery, the epic fantasy from. And yes, he was basing a lot of what he wanted to write on sagas and epics and things like that. But that's where 
you know, he, he's often imitated for a reason. He's still often imitated sort of 70, 80 years later. Yeah. So you can't just throw him out completely. Um, yeah. Obviously, there was fantasy before that because you had fairy tales and folk tales, etc. But once again, there the things happen just because. And now suddenly we've got this fantasy system which is kind of new where it's the world is much more defined it's much more logical it's not a case of well this happens just because in the same way that it does in Tolkien Mm -hmm. I mean people do things and there are consequences in Tolkien in the same way that people do things in history and there are consequences in history Mm -hmm. but it's not the same a lot of it is very rooted in fairy and folktale or epics and sagas etc whereas this sort of maybe it's 20 years old maybe it's way younger than that kind of hard fantasy system seems to have be seems to be what happens when fantasy soft fantasy smashes up against science fiction and goes hang on a minute <laughs> i need i need better parameters and goes back and fixes some things so people who read both have come out with i want to write something that has kind of the parameters of science fiction but is actually set in a fantasy world if that makes mm-hmm. sense yeah absolutely um and you know, this is also where things can start to get complicated because, yes, we talked about sort of the fairy tales and that rule, but of course, because there is a lot of folklore which is tied into kind of old ideas uh, such as um, alchemy and stuff like that, uh, you can find books which are hard fantasy, which have those kind of folkloric elements because those folkloric elements aren't being used in the fairy tale whimsical sort of way where it's these things happen because they do but because they have been converted into more of a grounded science with this idea of it being a a natural force rather than a kind of a supernatural force if that makes sense yeah it it does make perfect sense um and it's i don't I suppose let's let's finish off this little segment actually thinking about it and, and then I'll waffle about this a bit more afterwards. <laughs> but basically, so talking about this hard fantasy, soft fantasy, where does that leave us on the, leave us on the science fiction front? Well, uh, leaving aside the fact that there are a surprising number of fairy tales retold in space or with a sci-fi angle, mm-hmm. um, hard science fiction often engages with cultural clashes between humans and other races. Now, fairy tales, folk tales, and myths from form part of the anthropological backlog of such clashes. So if you think about it, they're cultural characteristic motifs that turn to repeat within a hard science fiction narrative. Mm-hmm. Um, a good example... Uh, which will make the maths and physics hard sci-fi fans scream at me, probably. (laughs) Um, And I'm sorry, guys, but I still would class this as hard sci-fi. It is Dune by Frank Herbert. Um, I've heard Dune described as space opera, and I I really don't think it is. Um, By the terms of our definition as we've laid them out today, it's hard sci-fi, only it's based in ecological concerns rather than mostly mathematical. Um, Otherwise, it does have a defined logical world with rational parameters, and it's engaged with scientific problem of power um, and politics. And in this instance, it's weirdly sort of obsessed with supply chain demand and (laughs) management of it. Um, But it's a really important sort of point that Herbert was making at the time 
where you've got whoever controls the spice literally controls the universe because it's the most wanted and most rare substance in the universe and it just exists on this one planet if you yeah. control that planet you control space travel which means you control the entire universe yeah. it's a really interesting idea and yes he was kind of using it a little bit as a metaphor for oil for example but it was also drugs it was also long life it was also medicine it was also pleasure so it was all these things that humans want um and you've got this this sort of space-faring feudal system in place um all around it and then on top of that you have the religious order of the Bene Gesserit who I've mentioned before who literally use basically uh religious folk tales and fairy tales etc which they seed in places so that if one of their number ends up in one of these out of the way places they can tap into this cultural narrative which has been seeded with these carefully laid sort of folk tales and things yeah so that they will be believed and supported it's very cunning in fact <laughs> yeah and not at all creepy oh no it's super creepy <laughs> I realise you're being sarcastic but no 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 it's absolutely creepy they're not good people they're just very clever people <laughs> those two things don't have to go hand in hand so um, yeah as regards softer science fiction it's amazing how many have their storytelling modes set to fairy tale where enabling devices act almost like magic to make things happen um now, if anyone's sat there going, what the hell is she talking about enabling devices? Well, it's things like faster-than-light drives. I mean, I was watching Battlestar Galactica again recently, um, <laughs> and they like spin up the FTL drives, and it took me a shameful amount of time when I first watched the program to understand that FTL stood for faster-than-light. It's literally, it, literally, they may as well have labelled it we don't want to explain how space travel and jumping through space works, so we're going to call it faster than light, and then we're going to turn it into an acronym so it sounds fancy. Yeah. <laughs> um, or the transporters. You'd be surprised what you can get away with with a good acronym. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Um, it's the transporters in Star Trek. I mean, in theory, they, they do throw a little bit of very soft hypothetical science in there as in oh yes what we do is we we disintegrate you into all your molecules transport them through space and reassemble at the other end and it's like okay that's that's not hard science because we don't know how to do that (laughs) theoretically teleportation via the means of science technically it's an enabling device and it's the same when you've got a great something like guardians of the galaxy or um something like star wars or, or whatever hyperspace anything where it's like oh god we'd never you know we couldn't have a space we couldn't have literally Star Wars. We could not have people from different planets waging war on each other because they can't get to each other. They can literally yeah. just glare across thousands <laughs> of light years of space in each just other's a lot, direction. A lot of people with very powerful telescopes just scowling at each other. But not yeah. every writer who writes science fiction wants to write, well, here is the mathematical process of travelling that distance through space. And yes, the people who start off in their 20s will arrive there in their 70s unless we find some way <laughs> of slowing that entire process down. And, you know, then we have to deal with the fact that everyone they've loved on Earth or wherever they've come from is probably dead by now. You certainly can't have them zipping around the galaxy like they do no. in Star Wars, where it's like, oh, well, two weeks have passed for me, but actually, really, it was sort of like four months for you. That's a short period of time. Usually, there's like, it's like going to fairyland where you don't yeah. really, you might come back and everyone's been dead for hundreds of years. 
Those parallels you... are all there. <laughs> before you start worrying about temporal anomalies or, you know, the way that gravity affects things. You know, I could really get into the physics here. You can see how I go for more of a hard sci-fi, can't you? But... Mm. <laughs> Um, but yeah, an enabling device to anything that goes, oh, that's a big scientific problem. Here's this special device, which we're going to call a fancy name or a fancy acronym, and it will let us just skip over the whole the whole logical problem that we need to deal with. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't have a problem with that, because why no. should anybody who wants to write a space adventure or a space fantasy or just generally a good space opera, a science fiction, uh, entertaining piece of fiction or film have to go into have to go and get a phd in physics you know <laughs> yeah um, and particularly it, it's it's the same with anything when you are writing about a certain thing sometimes that's the story that needs to be told and you don't need to have everything else absolutely perfect because it's not required for what you're trying to achieve or what you're trying to do yeah absolutely Okay, so there are a few things to consider when we talk about this, and then we're gonna we're gonna have quite a loose discussion about how we would use it, and you know mm. if you if you want to think about whether you're using more hard or soft um, science fiction or fantasy in your own work, then we'll talk a bit about that as well. Yeah. Um, but there are some things that we we need to say a few caveats. So basically, these definitions we've used they're not set in stone. Um, they're more guidelines than definitions, in fact. So for yeah. some people, the term hard and soft refer far more to how difficult they will have or how hard they will have to work to understand the world and the story. Yes. Um, that usually has a directly proportional relationship to the rigour of the, the science and the logic, but it is something to consider. You know, one person's hard sci-fi is another person's uh, space opera. Yeah, absolutely. Have you ever read uh, something where you've gone, oh my god, the author is so much more intelligent than I am and I'm actually hurting my brain trying to keep up? <laughs> and you yes. can only read the book in small chunks. And um, I've obviously encountered things like that. I think everybody has because everyone's got different kinds of smart, haven't they? So there's yeah. always going to be something where you go, okay, I am... I can get to where you are with what you're saying there, but I'm going to have to run three times as fast to be half as good. And that's a normal thing, by the way, for people. Not everyone has to start from the exact same starting point on every single thing. Hmm. Yeah. It's, it's one of those things where you might have an author who spends a lot of time building up the logistics of their world. So they, they really, really develop the kind of um, the world building, the politics, um, how everything has all kind of come together. And I might be there saying, OK, that's great, but actually I'm here for these characters, not for whatever the hell this is and um, I'm really struggling to read this because it is so dense and you are trying to essentially give me a whole high school education uh, at a time where I I'm actually not here for a I'm not here to study. I'm, I'm here to find out about this one character who's been given a who's been given a sword and has to go and find their missing brother etc <laughs> Yeah, absolutely, and it's it, it. There, when my okay, here's a here's an example. I'm talking about June again, but when my dad first tried to read June, way way before I'd sort of cottoned onto it, um, because I was about eight, and even me at eight, June was probably a bit 
bit too hardcore for me. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, I was reading Shakespeare, but June was like, no, that's too much. Um, he, I think he borrowed it from the library and he ended up reading a couple of chapters and taking it back because he just didn't engage with it. He didn't find it interesting. And But mm. he and I, uh, me as a child, obviously, watched the really, really interestingly cast, shall we say, <laughs> 80s film of June, which kind of takes the spirit of the book but is very 80s in it, in in its aesthetics and everything yes june is a very difficult thing to adapt anyway obviously much much later um they readapted they've readapted june several times but they readapted june as a film hmm. um with timothy chalamet which is the most recent one and it's an absolute masterpiece it really is amazing and dad watched that and immediately wanted to read the book and I got him the book for Christmas and it took him a few months but he got through it and he was just sort of saying to me I don't know how I didn't read it before and I didn't want to come out and say the reason you couldn't engage with it before was not anything to do with you it was the fact that you were in your late 30s trying to raise two children with another child on the way and you were working all the hours God sends and what you wanted was entertainment. You didn't want a treatise on ecology, terraforming and politics. Yes. <laughs> so what I said was, you know, every book has its time. And I think that is genuinely true. There will be books you pick up and you go, I can't kill cope with this right now and you'll put it down and maybe you'll pick it up in twenty years' time and go, Oh my god, it's amazing. How did I not read it before? Yeah. Um, um, and I think that that's what Dune was with my dad. It, it it was too hard sci-fi for him at the time. He wanted David Gemmell in space. He did not want... This is sandworms. <laughs> this is what happens when you remove a creature from, from the ecology of a planet. Bad stuff happens to the entire universe. Yes. <laughs> um, so, yes, it's... <laughs> uh, again, it... it... I think that some people really find it quite limiting, um, even trying to use those definitions. Um, yeah, th there is a big argument about hard fantasy where people are very hostile to the terminology and saying they want it thrown out. Um, and I think the reason that they're saying this particularly is because a lot of them actually are female authors, I believe, who are saying get rid of the term hard hard fantasy. And I understand why, because an awful lot of female fantasy writers immediately get tarred with the you write young adult brush. Yeah. There's absolutely nothing wrong with writing young adult. Unless you don't write young adult, you write for adults and your books get miscategorized, ergo they don't sell as well. Or you get massive complaints because of the sexual content or the violence in them when they were never intended for sort of 14 to 18 year olds. Yeah. Uh, it's it, it's part and parcel of this idea that the quality of books, um, you know, people say, oh, well, f fantasy, it's just that that's fluff and, and wooliness. But now you can have sort of respectable fantasy um, and hard science fiction, hard fantasy. These would be the respectable kind. These are these are for proper smart people um, and all the rest is just woolly or weak. Um, and I think that some people can really kind of aim towards that, believe that, um, or be given that impression, um, which is why I can understand a lot of people saying we don't want these terms because it adds to this ridiculous um, graph which people have in their minds of the quality of 
a piece of writing and the accolades that ought to be kind of bestowed upon it. Yeah, it brings in the whole sort of uh, reader-writer snobbery thing as well, whereby Mm. if you write hard science fiction or hard fantasy, then you are a proper science fiction or fantasy writer, as you say. Ergo, you're probably a man. Yeah. And if you're female or whatever, you, you probably only write you know soft science fiction soft fantasy and we know that this is absolutely not the case i mean it's complete bollocks mm. um it's it's very much a reflection of the whole well if you write literary fiction you're a proper writer and if you write anything else you're kind of like a prol or a hack um, yeah. again which is utter bollocks and you know not many actual authors believe that unless they're very insecure about their own writing i think yeah but i think a lot of authors even if they themselves don't believe it, are very conscious of how certain terms can affect their readership or the way that people perceive their work. Yeah. Um, And certainly, I mean, again, I think it's one of those big issues whereby you do have a lot of female writers who are saying, yeah, I'm writing this, I've I've done a fairy tale retelling or things like that, and people immediately go, oh, well, it's got to be for, for, you know, for young adults. I'm just imagining Angela Carter, if Angela Carter was like, here, I've written this (laughs) fairy tale, people are like, oh, well, immediately it's got to be for children. She's like, ha, 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 just try. Um, (laughs) She was writing literary fiction, you know, so she, she got away with it by saying, oh, you know, it's, that's different. But yeah, it's this idea that by using words like hard and soft in the same way of using terms like creative writing, creativity, soft, hard, we have these immediate impressions of what, what that actually means. If it's creative, if it's soft, that means it's, it's, it's easy, it's for children, it, it's, it, it's, you know, just dessert. Um, if it's hard, then that means it's hard <laughs> therefore more yeah. worthy of doing more sophisticated etc i mean it, that's the thing isn't it hard doesn't refer to the difficulty level hard simply refers to the rigor of the structure of the world building etc that yeah. that's it but i think and that's the other thing that i i mean i've got two points here but one is there's a big question mark over why is it that difficult things should be more valued than things that are easy because there's a time for doing difficult things and there's a time for doing things that are easy and being and perhaps you're somebody who enjoys doing things that you're good at or enjoys reading books that are easy to read because what you need right then is escape yeah and perhaps you're someone who who really feels they need to challenge themselves and they want to read what they would consider inverted commas, difficult books, um, which maybe most people would find less enjoyable because they have to work harder. I mean, I think everyone's kind of got this vital capacity where, well, vital capacity for how hard a book has to be, how hard they have to work in order to access a book before they'll just go, I don't want to read this and put it down. Yeah. It it is very much also the, you know, the argument of you know, there are some people who like to go for a Sunday stroll, and there are some people who like to climb, climb Everest. Yeah. Um, and for some people, the stroll is all they need, the stroll is all they want, the stroll is also all they have time for, um, or the capacity to do. And for some people, in order to actually really enjoy a walk, they've got to be on the on the edge of death. <laughs> but that's, yeah. That, 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 it's just 
what different people want at different times, etc. Yeah, absolutely. And the important thing is is to read, or the important thing is to go for that walk. It's not it's not how difficult it is, or how much you're carrying in the pack on your back at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. The other thing here is when we say soft science fiction fantasy and hard science fiction fantasy, it's a sliding scale, mm. and where it gets doubly confusing, particularly for those people who want absolute definitions, which, sorry guys, spoiler alert, but there aren't any, um, it is the fact that you can have something that is set in a soft fantasy world and it will have, it will technically be hard fantasy because of, uh, because of various other factors. It will fall under hard science you know, and you can have a very, very well-defined world with rules, etc., and it will technically be, in story terms, soft fantasy. And then there's a lot of back and forth between the two. There's a lot of mix and match going on. Yeah. So it is a sliding scale. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so, I mean, I guess we should get to sort of our own kind of feelings regarding this. Um, so... Should we talk about a few examples first? Yeah, a few sort of fan favourites with sort of the the hard subgenres. Yes. Um, so let's start with hard fantasy then. Um, so I think probably one of the first one that comes to mind is Game of Thrones. Yeah, I mean, if you think about the first book, magic gets mentioned, but it doesn't really even happen until the end of that book, and even then, it's very nebulous. So it's yeah. very much more concerned with. Uh, people interacting, the struggle for power, politics and intrigues. And yet it's very definitely a fantasy. <laughs> yeah, it, it magic really does exist only on the kind of the edges. Um, it, it's sort of... I, I, I've got another example of it, of, of magic kind of living on the edges. And it feels very much like if you looked at it carefully, perhaps you would also then find explanations, scientific explanations for certain things, up to a point. And then obviously it gets a little bit harder to, uh, <laughs> to yeah. kind of ignore. <laughs> and you've got the gods and things, but the gods don't go striding through the lands correcting things or anything. You know, they can't be whistled up. Uh, no. they, they exist there as a, as a collection of ideas. Um, obviously, the world itself is very much based on medieval Europe, if not medieval Britain or George R. R. Martin's understanding of it, anyway. Um, yeah. And obviously the, the War of the Roses and things like that as well, mm-hmm. which is obviously a bit later. And it's just, because of that, you do get this very rigorously um, well-built and very, you know, hard-parametered world. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it, it's hard fantasy, in my opinion. Um, we mentioned the... We mentioned the Masquerade trilogy, but yeah, the traitor Baru Cormorant is the same thing, and I've talked about it a lot, so <laughs> I'm I'm not going to go into too much detail. But again, it's this very there's no magic, there's no magical creatures. There is this completely imagined world that is very very well and sharply defined, um, and it's about politics and economics believe it or not you wouldn't yes. think economics could be a sexy subject for a fantasy novel but it is somehow <laughs> it is yeah it um i'd also say that on the edge of this the, sort of the gentleman bastard series um kind of sits on the edge of hard hard fantasy yeah i i'd agree with that 
Um, because yes, they do have majors, but it, it's kind of, they're very much in the sort of the background. Yes, they obviously begin to take up a more kind of present position, but it, it's very grounded. There's, and, and it's almost like, yes, there's this whole kind of idea of this old magical race and stuff like that. But in the same way that we would have this idea of, ah, yes, the forebearers and stuff like that, the magical times, we don't really know much about this, etc. Um, and it feels very much like a renaissance, you know, world. Um, yeah. He's done a lot of sort of world building with just every now and again sort of little creepy things, but they're on the horizon. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, another one that this was a recommendation that I made uh, quite some time ago now, <laughs> but it's Emily Wilde's Encyclopedia of Fairies. Technically, this is a very cosy fantasy read, and yet it is also hard fantasy because. The entire setup is, a, again, a well-defined world that is almost an alternate history. And Emily Wilde herself is off basically trying doing this anthropological study where she categorises the fae of various <laughs> different places. And it's one of those, it's like an alternate history with an unusual scientific study type thing. So even though it is technically quite a cosy read... It's also a hard fantasy novel, which just goes to show the, the sheer breadth of um, combined factors you can have, I think. Yeah, it, it is one of those things where, again, you almost kind of, you're left reeling thinking, but it's cosy. How can something that's cosy be hard? <laughs> it's like, me, because it's a lot more complicated than you think. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, we mentioned the natural history of dragons. Um, I recommend that entire series, actually. I just blazed through those books they were so much fun um and they feel again very much like fantasy and yet when you stop and think it's like there's no real magic happening here there's like maybe one or two slightly unexplained bits but that's it and that's mm. no more than you get unexplained bits in real life yeah <laughs> i made the observation today for example that uh, uh, if you've ever seen a bumblebee know that uh, scientists still don't know how it flies <laughs> yeah they are confused and scared um and <laughs> that's the reality of every now and again things happen in the natural world that science still can't explain but yet it's happening um <laughs> Yeah. Um, and then, of course, obviously, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, too, which we, we have also mentioned. Yeah. Um, and again, you would think, hang on a second, but there's all these fairy tales and stuff like that. And it's, yeah, it's one of those examples where... But they're used kind of as, of, as anthropological colour again. They, you never get a direct translation fairy tale for fairy tale there. Yeah. Um, the magic system itself is very closely rooted in language, but also in music and mathematics. Yeah. So, and, and obviously the historical elements are very accurate. So again, it's it's hard fantasy. Yeah. Okay. So then, what about hard sci-fi? I think these are sort of some easier ones to sort of. Define. Yeah, hard sci-fi because I think it's technically existed longer is easiest to define but i've mentioned dune and again i'm I'm sorry if you're one of the people screaming at me that it's not it's kind of a space opera then i'm sorry i disagree with you um <laughs> i talked about that obviously uh, i've mentioned the mars trilogy by kim stanley robinson this is all about mankind leaving earth and terraforming mars so you've got red mars blue mars and green mars is, is what the the books are called in the trilogy mm. and it's a really interesting look at the process of 
how you'd go about terraforming. Um, and again, the world itself is, we're not so scientifically advanced that it's almost like magic, if you see what I mean. It's not Star yeah. Trek future. Um, and it, it just runs along those lines. Uh, one of my favourite hard sci-fis that people are going to go, what, that's not hard sci-fi? Uh, oh, actually, it kind of is, isn't it? Is The Martian by Andy Weir. Yes. <laughs> this is this is one of those ones where I think it's a perfect example of hard sci-fi because Andy Weir is a massive nerd. And yeah. that was one of the big things is he wanted to make sure that the maths and the science actually worked. Um, and so, I mean, I think he even built programs, computer programs, in order to make certain calculations so that they would be as accurate as possible based on the knowledge that we have today. And that yeah. is pretty damn hard. <laughs> God, yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, no, it absolutely is. Um, and what's really amusing to me, but in a sort of, it's a cool way, is not only has Andy Weir visited NASA several times himself as an honoured guest, The Martian is now required reading for all, all new NASA recruits because yeah. of the creative problem-solving aspect, but also because it's so accurate. But you wouldn't think reading The Martian or watching the film, and the film is an actually very a accurate adaptation of the book, mm. because you've got this smart-ass, slightly irreverent, kind of an asshole main character... Yeah. who's getting through all this terrible sort of Robinson Crusoe in space stuff by being a bit of a dick um, and yet still out, you know, man versus well it's not even man versus nature as we know it's man versus space yeah. um, man versus complete lack of oxygen and howling <laughs> void um, it's uh, yeah, it, it's hard science fiction it's science as we know and understand it it's based on maths as we know it it actually gives you maths and science within the book and it does it in these this way that it, it's quite accessible to pretty much everybody yeah um, it's hard science fiction and yet people are like it can't be hard science fiction you've got this character who's like this and it's like he could be someone you meet down the pub and I'm like that doesn't stop it being hard science fiction yeah again there are these kind of illusions of what you imagine hard science fiction must entail just because some books that do include it do entail that and that's um, yeah that's that's one of the complicated aspects of it. <laughs> yeah. Um, if we're going to move on to hard science fiction films, which are a little bit more self-contained and quieter, there were some great ones from the, the late 90s. So there's Gattaca. I don't know if you've ever seen that. No. It's a near-distant future where we are able to uh, genetically engineer embryos in utero so that they're born without you know things like uh, heart disease or whatever mm -hmm. um, it's kind of a look uh, it's kind of a look at eugenics via the medium of um, of genetic engineering uh, you know we can't do that yet because it, you know the human genome is way more complicated any genome is way more complicated than that but certainly when you get to a complex organism like a human being it's way more complicated if you move one gene you might be moving six or seven other things out of place yes. basically um, so it, it's not that straightforward uh, but in Gattaca you're in this very defined world that we would understand that we know mm -hmm. and they accidentally create a class system based on someone's probability of having 
a heart issue, for example, or, you know, they're not genetically engineered to be the most intelligent person that, that, that they could be. Mm-hmm. So you're kind of like pre-selected for, you know, things. And the main character is a guy whose parents said, oh, at the beginning, we want a natural birth which is what they go for. And he, you go flash forward to something like 25 years and he's basically a janitor and he's not allowed to raise it any higher than that, despite the fact that he does have an awful lot of uh, natural aptitude and intelligence and stuff, simply because he was not engineered to be the best that he could be, whereas his mm-hmm. brother was. Um, there's a lot of social commentary and stuff in there as well. And he manages to cheat the system with the help of a guy who was genetically engineered to be the best he could be, but who got drunk and had a stupid accident and ended up in a wheelchair. Mm. This guy, again, assists him to cheat the system. But it's in its things like, I mean, they genetically test you going in and out of this building, and he wants to be part of the space program. But he has to fool the system into thinking that he is this particular guy who again had the accident but whose blood yeah. would show up that he is genetically adapted to be the best he can be if you see what I mean it's yeah. a really really interesting film it's very good and very well done but I have to actually check that out <laughs> and then for the real maths and physics and astrophysics even nerds contact which you know they never technically really le- well I mean there's one part where they leave earth but it's basically predicated on the idea that we start receiving signals out of space that something wants to communicate with us Mm. um and there's a obviously a big conversation about what we should do about it exactly and the main character who's played by jodie foster is saying well we're being communicated with in the language of maths and science so we should send somebody who speaks that language very well and eventually they send her up to obviously speak like this and she has what seems to be a really, really vivid acid toe trip. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, they take recordings, etc. And and when they get her back, uh, they're like, well, basically what happens was you hit the atmosphere and you passed out and that was it. And she's like, no, 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 all this stuff, all this happened. And eventually they convince her that nothing really happened. It all went wrong. Nothing was trying to communicate with her. And then you get that little, I'm sorry, spoiler alert, but you get this little bit at the end saying that you know she'd been talking for hours with this alien intelligence and they said well you know we we recorded nothing we we just recorded static and the person who was in charge of like whatever official secrets or whatever says yeah that's not what interests me what interests me is we recorded roughly 30 hours of this static why was it recording that long if she blacked out after three minutes yeah and you're just left with this big question um, but again, it's a very small, it's a very self-contained film. You don't have the big spacefaring pyrotechnics or anything. But it's a really interesting sort of hard sci-fi story. Again, very much predicated on the maths and physics of it all. Hmm. It, it does kind of interest me because I think, again, Contact might be one that a lot of people sort of feel isn't hard sci- sci-fi because there is a, a spiritual element to it as well. Yeah, you know, it, it is very much a kind of a story about people and humanity and, and and all that jazz. And so again, I think 
people have certain expectations of what accompanies something that has the word hard in it. Yeah. Um, and so they wouldn't associate it with being hard sci-fi. But you're right. I agree. I, I believe that it is. Yes. So those are some examples. Obviously, there are there are way more. There are hundreds and hundreds of examples of hard sci-fi, and there's way more examples of hard fantasy. You probably come up with a few just listening to this podcast episode. Yes. <laughs> um, so, do we ever incorporate hard elements in our own writing? Um, that is a complicated question <laughs> it is a complicated question um i'm gonna say yes uh, although it was somewhat unwitting when i did it um other than the fact that if i'm talking specifically harker and blackthorn hmm. um i usually go for quite a defined world anyway and if you're going for urban fantasy chances are you're setting it in a world of very like art so you've already got the very defined world with rules and logic that kind of makes sense yeah um so you're already on that sliding scale of hard to soft, slightly more towards hard. Um, but certainly with Harker and Blackthorn, one of the big things is that every single creature they come up against, they attempt to come up with some sort of scientific explanation for it, or I have done. Yeah. Um, so, for example, with the lindworms in book four, it's like, well, actually, they're a branch of lab labyrinthodont who didn't actually die out. And it's not impossible that something like that would be out there, if you see what I mean. Yeah. Um, and again, trying to explain how something like a dragon could breathe fire will actually manage to do that. <laughs> I'm, I'm basically making a rod for my own back, though, because the more complicated the creature gets, the harder and harder it gets for me to scientifically explain it. But I'm, I'm not done yet. <laughs> <laughs> I do like it, but and I think it also works and can therefore kind of tickle sort of two sets of people because of course you've got the complete contrast between Steve and Bex yeah. where Steve is very much like yup uh, folklore, this is all precedent, magic etc, you know, he's he's not a, a, he's by no means a stupid person but he absolutely believes and has knowledge of these kinds of these more supernatural elements whereas Bex is coming from the completely opposite side and so because we get both of those sides and neither is treated like it's wrong no um i feel like people can go into it saying yeah no this is this is so the soft fantasy i want and some people can go into it saying like yeah there's enough hard st stuff here that i actually don't feel that this is totally unbelievable etc it's like, I think Steve says at one point, the folklore tells the science where to start looking for the answers. Yeah. And that, I think, is, is actually quite an, an accurate thing. If you're looking for something that should be impossible, but there is some weird sort of precedent for it, then yeah, that can, t that can give you a starting point. But obviously, as you say, he absolutely acknowledges that he can't explain how it works necessarily. It's just a case of, no, it, it's there. I, I think we can... Whereas Rebecca kind of starts from the place of, no, don't be ridiculous. Dragons don't exist. Do you know how many different genetic mutations it would have to undergo in order to be able to breathe fire? And what would the point be? It wouldn't increase its chances of procreating, etc., etc., etc. Oh, by the yeah. way, there's a fire-breathing dragon, so I guess I was wrong. <laughs> it, is, it is very much the whole kind of thing of, of sort of... <laughs> you've just got Steve like fairies okay that's a thing and Bex is just they're like so on a scientific level it is possible that there is another 
sort of realm which is etc goes on and on and on <laughs> and it's like she kind of looks to Amy for sort of like okay how would you explain this and Amy's like well as a physicist you could have this this and this and the maths would suggest this and then Rebecca's just left there looking at her utterly horrified like you're not really <laughs> a fun person to be around sometimes <laughs> It's comforting, though. She's like, I don't have to understand it. You said it in a scientific enough way that I can uh, that I can allow myself to believe that it's science, even if I don't understand all the physics behind it. Meanwhile, Amy's just seeing rows and rows of numbers as reality unfolds around her. And is like, yes, science. Um, <laughs> yes. Um, I think you get... I, I definitely don't lean quite as much into hard fantasy I don't really write sci-fi um, and I I do have some aspects of kind of harder kind of magical systems again which we're not going to talk about um, in the Hamashia cycle but I would say that really I, I don't write hard fantasy at all I don't I mean you don't really write super soft sci-fi um, fantasy either or so you have not your published works so far have not included really soft fantasy because yeah um, they, they may do in future obviously <laughs> yeah 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 I, I would agree in that I do tend to you know I've written some stuff which is quite whimsical but I I do like there to be a sense of foundation and I mean like for example for Kestrel it, it's very important for me that there is a set of kind of rules and regulations which are followed and which are consistent because obviously first of all they're set in the same world um, as sort of the Unveiled series and Harker and Blackthorn um, so that it does need to be consistent but also because for me I I would find it very very unsatisfying to just um, uh, you know like um, have something where anything could happen because then where's that tension where's that build up you've got to you readers have got to be able to sort of understand the foundation and follow the logical steps um, in order to appreciate what's happening yeah. um, particularly if magic is very involved in the story so that is definitely something that I've done and one thing I really wanted to do when it came to um, you know the, the Sons of Festi and the Hamashia cycle was that I wanted there to be this clear distinction between the fairy magic and the human magic because I really did want to have the sense that the human magic is like engineering. It's like mathematics. Um, it requires learning. Everyone has the ability to technically do it. Some people have more of a natural aptitude than others. Um, but in order to, to actually do it, to make something of it, you need to have the schooling. So you could have a natural aptitude for just being able to fix things up around the house. Uh, but if you wanted to go off and, and you know, be a, a sort of like a, a computer scientist or, or if you wanted to, um, you know, be a rocket scientist, etc., you would need to have some kind of training. Um, and some people are smart enough that they have, they have such an aptitude towards it that they can train themselves. That is what happens with Rufus. He just, he is if you were to convert it to the modern world, to the world today, he would be a mathematician. Um, he is just able to kind of see numbers. He's just able to see how these things all work out in his head. He'd very much be like a, a sort of 
a Da Vinci esque character. Yeah. Um, except unless, except unless not art so much as music. He, he does like sort of sketching out maps and stuff like that, but he's not not in the same way. But that would be his kind of where what level he'd be at, and that was really important to me because if I was going to follow these characters and they could do magic, there had to be very clear limitations. There had to be a very clear set of parameters. Otherwise, where would the tension be? Why would it be exciting, etc.? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, I mean, at some point, I've got ideas for actual science fiction stuff, but I've got a feeling that while... I, I'm, I think because I'm nitpicky enough to go, it has to make sense to me. Mm. And because I've got an interest in, in a lot of things, but obviously science and stuff, um, it's in the same way that I would want there to be historical accuracy where possible. So I want mm. there to be scientific accuracy or something that could happen. Um, I do recognise with my work that it gets to a point where my fundamental understanding and, you know, what, education around certain things and what research I do is going to hit a limit, it's going to hit a wall and yes. that means that in the unlikely event that someone who is actually a qualified physicist reads my work, it's probably not going to hold up to a whole lot of scrutiny and I'm really sorry but you know there's a limit to what I can do Yeah, at the end of the day it's, it's also what is the kind of the level that people want and that is going to change from person to person at the end of the day, you will never sacrifice story for, yeah. you know, in order to fulfill the need to please a, a very, if there is anyone, a tiny, a tiny minority of your readers who are not your target audience. Um, you are telling a story. That is the most important part. It's the same with me. Um, and if you fail to do that, then you you've kind of got to ask yourself, what's the most important thing? What am I actually trying to achieve? Again, we look at Andy Weir. When it came to The Martian, he was actually surprised at his success because when he wrote it, he very much said, I thought I was writing this for myself and a tiny community of nerds who just really wanted all the maths to be right. Yeah. Um, and that was what was important to him. And that was what he was aiming for. And it just so happened that it had enough qualities that it kind of worked for everyone else. But he knew what he wanted out of it and knew what was the most important part for him. And he didn't compromise with that. Um, and at the end of the day, you've got to decide what's the most important thing for you and how are you going to make it work best. Yeah. I mean, I've got to say that if you're writing something, then story needs to come almost before anything else mm. you will get people who read just for style you will get people who read just because they want the science to be accurate but they're yeah. much smaller than the people who just want a story yes <laughs> so you can and do all the other things to please yourself etc but story first yeah and again it's about who's your readership if you are saying well i am writing for people who like literary fiction because i'm writing literary fiction then you're not going to please anyone if you don't write literary fiction and then try and market it as literary fiction. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So hopefully uh, we are now at a stage where our listeners can kind of appreciate what the hell we're talking about. <laughs> That's always um, nice. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yes, we do appreciate that obviously it's, it's a lot more complicated 
um, than a simple kind of answer. Um, and we are always welcome to hear people's thoughts. I mean, do you agree with us? Do you disagree with us? Do you have any examples of things which you didn't realize or didn't think were hard sci-fi or fantasy, but which now you're kind of actually having another look at? Um, you know, do let us know. Um, it's always nice to hear from you guys. Now, uh, before we go, it is time for our Dissecting Dragons recommendation of the week. And Jules, I believe that you have got one for us. Yeah, this was um, an unusual pick for me in the sense of I kept hearing about it on Booktuber's recommendations. And I was like, I'm low-key curious about this. So I picked it up and I was absolutely gripped by the entire thing, even though it wasn't really something that I would have normally picked up. Mm. It's called The Book of the Most Precious Substance by Sarah Gran. Mm -hmm. um, it follows the main character, Lily, who, uh, when we first meet her, she's a dealer in rare books. And one of her dealer, uh, her book dealer, sorry, that is, I say dealer, I mean <laughs> book dealer, book dealer, um, acquaintances says has she ever heard of anything has she heard of a book called the book of most precious substance um and she's like well no actually that one's not on my radar um i've never heard of that before and she sort of trades generally and then as you go further into the story you realize she wasn't always a book dealer she was actually a writer but she hasn't written anything for the past 12 years so she started off as this young sort of up and coming almost rock and roll Rock, you know, rock star type writer. Everything yeah. was going her way, and then you realise why she hasn't really written anything for a while. I'm not going to tell you what happened to her husband, or you know, the, basically the love of her life, because it's better, I think, if you go in and read the book and find out. Um, but for one reason or another, she, you know, it, it started to wear away the money and her time, and she just didn't have the emotional energy in order to put it into writing, and she had to find a way of making ends meet. So she went and stealing rare books. Mm. Another acquaintance sort of comes to her and says, oh, did so-and-so mention of, of, of this book to you? And she's like, oh, that book. And they were talking about it, and as they're talking about it, someone else comes up and says, hey, did you hear about the person she was originally talking to? He got mugged last night. Oh, God, is he okay? No, he was murdered. Okay. <laughs> but they don't really necessarily connect it with the fact that he was looking for the book of the most precious substance. Um, this gives both her and her, her colleague a chance to go, we could just source that book. It's worth one and a half million pounds, basically. One and a half million dollars, sorry. Um, that's a lot of money. And Lily's thinking I could definitely use half of one and a half million. So they, it, it starts off as a quest narrative and they don't know much about the book to start with. And as you go on, it turns out that the book is a book of sex magic. Okay. <laughs> from sort of Renaissance Italy. And only five copies of it were written and they were handwritten. And it is literally one of the most rare books in existence. Um, and... Lily's very good at tracking things down. So they, they come up with all sorts of leads and it turns into this amazing sort of really compelling adventure story where they go looking for this book. But they don't just go looking for the book. They find out exactly what the book contains. And then she and this male colleague of hers kind of without any real prior discussion 
fall into this sexual relationship where they then start taking acts from the book that they're looking for um, and performing them because it's a series of rights which culminate in you getting whatever you want, your heart's desire as you make the last you do the last right kind of thing but you will get little rewards on the way up it's very difficult to describe I would definitely definitely it's quite graphic <laughs> to be yeah. fair and not graphic in a this is this is uh, this is sexy time kind of reading for fun this is kind of like no this is quite graphic um, <laughs> it's very entertaining it's quite funny in places in other places it's just utterly compelling it's such a good book there's some low-key horror in there as well there's some sort of vague spookiness um, and there's you know there's a lot of poignancy as well and a lot of commentary on people and relationships um, highly recommend it very unusual read for me but I'm absolutely going to track down everything else Sarah Gran has written and read it because I enjoyed it that much okay that definitely sounds like a unique one so probably worth keeping an eye out guys and on that note we will say thanks very much for listening and we will catch you guys next week yeah thanks and goodbye bye you've been listening to dissecting dragons the speculative fiction podcast you can follow our podcast at podbean.com or from itunes for more information visit our facebook page at www.facebook.com forward slash dissecting readers or check out our author websites at jaironside.com and madelinevaughan.com. Please note that no dragons were harmed during the making of this podcast. <laughs> <laughs>